Luke chapter 6. Let's begin in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me, be, uh, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Next to John 3.16, I think that when we come to verse 37, judge not and ye shall not be judged is one of the world's favorite verses to quote at any time they're being confronted with wrong within their life. It is a verse that is used continuously out of context to try to establish the fact that any thinking, any lifestyle is universally acceptable to God, along with any teaching is universally acceptable to God. That individual opinion may not be challenged or uh, questioned in any regard whatsoever. Now that would be one thing if the, those who do not know Christ and who are not Christians, if they held to such a view of this particular verse. But unfortunately, Christians now have also adopted such an understanding of this verse. And as a result, the body of Christ has found itself in a lot of trouble. What did Jesus mean here at this point in Luke's gospel when he spoke these words? This is undoubtedly Luke's adaptation of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Luke tailors the Sermon on the Mount, or I should say highlights aspects of it that were specifically of importance to the Gentile reader, the one who wasn't Jewish. Uh, and therefore, he's getting to the heart of the points that Jesus is trying to make within this particular sermon. And as we come to this particular verse, we try to ascertain its meaning by reading it separate from the context in which we find it. 
And when we try to interpret this verse based on its independent context of the entirety of the sermon, we lose our understanding of what Jesus truly meant when he said this. If you look in your Bibles with me, you will often find that Bibles are separated with these little sentences, these subheadings over portions of Scripture. Now, please understand, these were not in the original Greek text when the apostles wrote the Gospels, the letters, the epistles, etc. These are called preecopies. It's a fun word, triple letter score in Scrabble. You can pretty much clean up on it. But that being said, these parecopies often disrupt the flow of the narrative or the context of the passage. And we sometimes make the, uh, we draw the conclusion incorrectly that a new thought is being presented at this time that should be taken independently of everything that runs before or after it. And as a result, then we try to independently interpret that portion of Scripture. And that's what's happening nine times out of ten when it comes to this portion of Scripture. Let us back up to verse 36, if we will. Let us understand that when these were written on parchment or scrolls, it was a, a Greek text, one word after another. There were no indentations, there were no punctuations. The tenses of the grammar themselves would indicate uh, emphasis, subject, uh, and so forth to allow for an understanding of the reading of the Greek text. But they didn't have exclamation points. They didn't have periods per se, commas and semicolons. That's why uh, the New King James uh, James, uh, translators, I believe, they had a love affair with semicolons. And the reason being, and this is not a criticism of them, but they just didn't know really what punctuation to put at certain places, especially when you come to Ephesians 1, which is one long sentence in its entirety. When Jesus speaks here, when we look at the way Luke wrote it initially, judge not lest he be judged, and I'm quoting the old King James, you can tell which version I memorized it in, judge not and you will not be judged, precedes verse 36 where Jesus instructs his disciples be merciful even as your father is merciful i believe that the the thought continues into verse 37 and Jesus begins to indicate and to kind of flesh out for us what it looks like to be merciful And as a result now, now we have a completely new context for the entirety of the passage in which we are going to look at this morning. Because when we come to verse 36 in the Greek language, it is a summation clause in the language that means it could proceed with the word therefore. Therefore, be merciful as God is merciful. And when James Vernon McGee, he aptly said, you know, whenever you see therefore, you have to ask, why is it therefore? You know, why is it there? You have to ask yourself the question, why is he summing up this portion this way at this time? So we go back to verse 27. I say to you, he who hears me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And it is as you wish that others would do to you, you so do to them. Now, getting a running start into verse 37, after being told to be merciful as God is merciful, seeing that the individuals that we are speaking of are those who would abuse us, our enemies, those who hate us, and so forth. Now this mercy looks like this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Notice with me the parallel of the four in verses 37 and 27. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Notice the parallels between them. And Jesus is saying to all of us, this is what mercy looks like. Judge not. The word means to evaluate to the point where we conclude that the individual is uh, unredeemable by God. That he's too far gone. And therefore we pay them no attention. The word condemned is the confidence that that person has already has his or her place reserved for them in hell. That there's no chance of escaping that final destiny. It would be easy to conclude or to do either to those who are, are your enemies, to those who hate you, to those who persecute you, wouldn't it? It'd be easy to say, well, they're just too far from God that God can't do anything in their life or their persecution of the Christians in the manner in which they are conducting themselves is surely a one-way ticket to hell in and of itself. And now we get a whole different look at this verse. No, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. This is what mercy looks like. This is how we demonstrate mercy in the face of the type of persecution outlined in verses 27 through 31. It is an unnatural reaction for you and I to respond in this way. It would be better stated that this is a supernatural reaction. Meaning that we in and of ourselves cannot conduct ourselves in such a manner apart from the spiritual enabling of God. Therefore, we become witnesses and testimonies of our faith in God. Who we are in Jesus Christ and the reality of that relationship. Showing and demonstrating, number one, that God is real, and number two, I truly believe in Him because of the Spirit's work within me. When Stephen was being stoned, he forgave his persecutors. When Paul the Apostle was dragging Christians out and persecuting them for their Christian faith, it would have been easy to determine, though, that, oh gosh, this one is way too far from God. 
oh, this individual disrupting families and sweet Christians, he is, has a one-way ticket to, uh, to hell. And yet he became, through the grace of God, the champion, one of the champions of the New Testament. This is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus came, John 3 tells us, not to condemn the world, but to save it. I want to say that again. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. For the world is condemned already, he said. We are not in the judging or the condemnation business. We are in the witness and salvation business as Christians. Our lives are a continuation within the body of Christ of the ministry in which Jesus Christ began in his first coming and will conclude at his second. Therefore, while we live, our mandate should be the same mandate in which Jesus carried himself. And so let us understand that we are here to be a light unto the darkness to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that there aren't times in our Christian uh, life that we should not stand against injustice, sin, and evil? Yes, there are occasions for us to do that. There are occasions for us to say that sin is wrong. There are occasions for us to say that this uh, moral depravity will destroy the fabric of our society. Yes, there is places for that. But the heart that we should carry, the attitude in our heart, should not be one of judging and condemnation of the world, but one to seek that the Lord would save those who see us. Jesus Christ forgave those who crucified him on the cross and therefore led Stephen to do the same as he was being stoned. This pierced the heart of Saul, who later became Paul, and therefore prompted the Lord to ask Paul the question on the road to Damascus, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you kicking against your own conscience, Paul? And then Paul finally surrendered to the point, who are you, Lord? This is what Jesus is trying to establish here in the Sermon on the Mount. It is an attitude of the followers of Jesus Christ and their heart towards the world. I know many of us have been Christians for a very long time and we no longer truly understand the world that we live in, right? I look around and I, I, I don't understand what people are doing and why they're doing it. I don't, I don't get it other than to say they don't know the Lord and they are lost and so forth. But my mandate hasn't changed. I have not received an email from God saying, call down fire and brimstone, Eric. I have not received the direction in a pillar of fire telling me now I shall proclaim the great day of judgment of the Lord. It's coming. And Jesus Christ will be the one who judges because Jesus Christ is the one that made it possible for people to be saved and he's in the perfect righteous position to carry out that judgment on this world. But I am not. I am one who is simply saved by the grace of God, and if it weren't for what Jesus has done on my behalf, I would be under that same weight of wrath that the entire world is. And therefore, my mandate is not to judge. It is not to condemn. 
It isn't to say that we can't call things wrong. It isn't saying that we have to accept every ideology, philosophy, lifestyle as gospel truth or acceptable. It means that my mandate is to be merciful as God is merciful. That's the primary. That's what I should look to do immediately, especially when it comes to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Being a a church of this size, we're, we're a small family, let's be honest. And the one thing I've noticed about a family is that sometimes family gets on your nerves, doesn't it? You're just like, boy, you know, Lord, it's true. You can't pick your brothers and sisters in, in, uh, biologically, and you can't pick your brothers and sisters spiritually. But God has called us to love one another, understanding that we are all works in progress, that we are all saved by the grace of God. And yet we are so quick to harbor bitterness, aren't we? We're so quick to feel that our anger is justified as righteous anger, aren't we? We're so quick to believe that for some reason we are in a superior position than our brother and sister in Christ somehow, some way, and therefore we can deem them unworthy of our forgiveness. And then Jesus simply whispers in our ear, doesn't he? Now you forgive simply because I have forgiven you. I know that unforgiveness is detrimental to the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. In my personal life, I did not realize the bitterness that I harbored towards my mother for the way that we had grown up under the umbrella of alcoholism and the violence that it brought about in our family. But when the Lord finally started to show me, Eric, you haven't dealt with this. And when he gave me the grace to truly forgive, it was a liberating experience. And I thought that I was joyful, but I found out quickly that that unforgiveness was hindering the true joy that I could have had. That I was growing cynical and bitter towards my family. And therefore, maybe not being the witness that God desired me to be. But I was so grateful for the grace of God to allow me to forgive my mother of those things. And then not only to forgive her, but then to see her come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It was a true blessing. I don't know how you've been wronged. I don't know who has wronged you. I don't know the severity of the offense against you. But may I ask that you take that offense and put it and place it in the perspective of all that God has forgiven you of and allow God therefore to help you forgive that person simply motivated by that reality of what God has forgiven you of and let God deal with the consequences let God deal with that individual you forgive as you have been forgiven when it comes to giving Notice in verses 27 through 31, he talked about giving generously. He talked about giving uh, without looking for things in return. He therefore parallels that here in verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. God will take care of us. 
As Christians, we should understand first and foremost that all of the material possessions that we have, and we are all blessed, I can say that, I'm sure, we are all blessed with what we have. But let us first and foremost realize that everything that we have has truly been given to us by God. And therefore, we should see ourselves not as owners, but stewards of what God has given us. And therefore, if it is that that God has given us and we are stewards, it is truly in the master's command to ask us to use our material goods, our financial uh, fortune for his glory. We should be some of the most generous people that there are, knowing that all that we have, God has given us. And I don't say that because we here at this church are looking for funds and we want you to be generous. We're not going to manipulate you in that way. But I do say this, that you can't outgive God. God is very gracious and he loves a cheerful giver. And that's what he has asked us to become, cheerful givers of all that we have. Now, we often just reduce it to material possessions. But let's talk about another possession that we have. That's our time. Time needs to be also handled in a generosity towards others. Allowing for God to interrupt our day at any given moment because he desires to do something extraordinary in that moment. Not only giving all of our material possessions and our financial uh, issues and concerns to him and bringing them under a biblical blanket of understanding, but let us also budget our time in the exact same fashion, knowing that every breath has been given to me by God and truly let us understand tomorrow has been promised to no one. This gives us a completely different perspective that the time we do have is basically by the grace of God. And let us use it there for his glory. Now, Jesus uses a term here. It is a cultural term. It is a term that was often used in the marketplaces there in Jerusalem. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. In the marketplace, individuals would often bring their own bags to carry their produce or meat or whatever they were purchasing back home. It's kind of like the Aldi's of that day, you know? You go into Aldi and you're carrying all your bags with you and you have to put the the quarter in the cart and you do all your grocery shopping and then you bag up everything at the end and so forth and then you go home. Well, when you came to certain uh, merchants, for example, one who was selling flour and you had your bag and you asked him to fill the bag. Now, merchants who were looking to take advantage of you would just fill the bag to a certain portion and then close up the bag and give it back to you. But merchants who were fair in their trading, merchants who wanted to maintain a good reputation and really really have you believe that they have given you the best deal possible, will take that bag, fill it with flour, and they will pound it down so it settles 
Then they can put more flour into it, pound it down, and it settles. And now your bag is even, it's, it's quite a bit more full than it would have been if you just put the initial amount of flour in. It's kind of like when you go to buy breakfast cereal. I don't know about you, but this really bothers me. In fact, I think a civil lawsuit, a class action lawsuit should be, you know, I don't get to eat sugary cereals very often, but when, when I do, and you go and you, you buy a box of Lucky Charms, and the box is this big, okay, this wide, and you're like, oh man, this is going to last me forever, because I don't eat it that often. And then you open the box, and you, you open it up, and you tear open the plastic, which never tears properly, and it, you know, things fly all over. But you open up the plastic, you look down, and you're like, hello, hello, hello. It's just like, what the heck? This is, it's like, did I get the last box of the lot, or what? And it's just like, I'm just staring over it, and it's like, there's only two bowlfuls here. Now, they're mixing bowls, but there's only two bowls here. And it's just like, how do they get away with this? You know, if they actually had cereal boxes to this, the amount of cereal that you actually got, they would be this big throughout the store. I see some in it, too. If you want to join me in that class action lawsuit, I haven't found an attorney that will take it yet, but no, I'm kidding. Jesus is saying, this is the manner in which God will treat you. You forgive. Oh, and he'll forgive you. You have, comp- you have compassion rather than condemnation, and the compassion will be measured back to you in the same amount. That you, you know, don't judge, and therefore you will not be judged harshly. And it's not only between God and man, but also between individuals. When you walk in mercy, it's amazing how often mercy will find you in your times of need. You know, when a self-righteous Christian who has been, of course, commissioned by the Holy Spirit to determine everyone else's sin, you know, there's always one of the two of those around, when they unfortunately fall or sin, it's amazing. Nobody wants to comfort them at those moments. But if you're merciful and you're known for the grace it's often the same grace that you find given back to you. I know that one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to oversee the church and to confront any sin that may be leaven that will permeate and destroy the body here or false teaching that may destroy the body here. But before I ever, ever personally address or confront the circumstance, I always give God a moment to do it. I've had opportunities where an individual, it was brought to my attention that they were living in a lifestyle contrary to Scripture, claiming to be a brother, and I knew that if their, life con- their lifestyle continued, it would have been detrimental to the church. But again, I began to pray, and then all of a sudden they came up to me and said, I need to get right with God. Showing grace first, and then dealing with it. And God will always show you when that appropriate moment is. Because I don't simply look for correction, I look for correction and restoration. 
It's not simply enough just to correct behavior. I want to see that individual restored spiritually to where God would have them to be. I don't fully understand how God works in all of this, but I can say this, that it's true. That God cannot be outgiven. He's extremely generous. He is extremely gracious. And he has asked us to be the same, especially to those who would abuse us for our faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, the perfect example of all of this was Jesus. Then he says here, in the measure in which you use it will be measured back to you. The same honest traders in the marketplace would use a scale, the same scale for weighing out the uh, weight of the merchandise in which you were purchasing and the weight of the compensation in which you were paying. So you knew that it was the same scale uh, judged, I mean, determined, I should say, and set, and a standard has been set in the same way that you're having a honest transaction between the merchant and yourself. And God is saying that, that I'm an honest merchant. And the measure in which you measure it out is the measure that you will receive it back. So be really generous, really forgiving. (laughs) Don't look to judge others. Don't look to condemn others. Let Jesus take care of all of that. Then he gives us three examples here. Let us look in verse 39 quickly. Can the blind lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? This was a proverb in the time of ancient Israel. It is an indication that, of course, one who cannot see cannot help one who also cannot see. The proverb had to do with physical blindness, one leading another, and it was, all, it was always used in the relationship between a teacher and a disciple. If the teacher was blind, how could he therefore lead a disciple who also was blind? Of course, Jesus used this to to condemn the Pharisees, blind guides, he called them. There's also a spiritual blindness the Bible speaks of, that we have been blinded by the ruler of this world, and if we are operating uh, underneath those blinders, how then can we lead anyone? But then there's a third cause of blindness, that Jesus brings to our attention here in this text. And this will hinder your leading of another one also, and it's one that we rarely consider. For notice what Jesus says here in verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but anyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Discipleship in that culture, once a student learned all that the teacher could teach him either by verbal communication or observation of one's life and therefore led by example, therefore imitating that example within their own lives, there could come a point where the individual now has grown to that level and therefore isn't really capable of learning anything more from that teacher. That's what Jesus is saying here. They won't supersede their teacher, but they will grow to where their teacher is. And that's what he's saying here. But that's not going to happen if they are both blind. And the blindness that Jesus was referring to here is now illustrated for us in the saying in which he is about to give us. It is a saying that derives from the fact that Jesus was a carpenter and worked with wood. 
And it was a saying that would have been completely understood by those listening to him. They didn't have OSHA at that time monitoring the quality control of the environment in which you know, carpentry was being done. They didn't wear goggles at that time. And so in woodworking, it would be incredibly common to find splinters in one's eye or specks in one's eye. But notice what he says here in verse 30 or 41, excuse me. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Before you go and seek to correct someone else by removing the speck from their eyes, first ask yourself, are you approaching them in sincerity or in hypocrisy? Are you sinning in the same manner that you see displayed in their life? As Chuck Smith used to say often, our sins always look worse on other people. And it's so true. And do you ever notice that when people are critical of other people, it's because they are displaying the sin that's in their own heart? And Jesus is saying this should not be. You cannot objectively approach your brother to correct them and to remove the speck out of their eye, which is keeping them from what? Seeing. I mean, have you ever gotten something in your eye and then try to see or move forward? I'll never forget riding my bike in the, on the bike trail and I got assaulted by a June bug. And I could have swore he flew right into my retina. And I'm not kidding you, I, I, I still can see the, the tentacles, you know, moving up and down and, the, and, and, and I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't see a thing. I was like this, holy cow! I'm swerving all over the place, you know, my eyes watering profusely. The little tiny bug doing such a thing. Now, if I had someone on the bike trail who came and stopped me, and they had, you know, a tarantula in their own eye, and they said, let me help you. No, no, that's okay. I'm good. I'm going to wait for someone else a little bit more competent than you. Okay. I have no doubt that when Jesus talked about a, a log and he means a beam of wood, this is, this is something significant. It was a, you know, a beam for the roof of a house or a beam for a ship that was being built sticking out of their own eyes that people chuckled and laughed and so forth. But how could you even believe that you're in any position to correct anybody else when you yourself are weighed down with the exact same sin, but to a greater proportion? I agree with those grammar experts who believe that the speck here is a speck of wood. That's what the Greek word is often used for. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used here, speaking of wood in the Old Testament. And so that being said, now we see that what Jesus is saying here 
is that not that your brother doesn't need to be corrected. He does. But make sure that you approach him sincerely and not hypocritically. And the word hypocrite there is the word that is used throughout the New Testament for one who would wear a mask, one who is not genuine, one who is insincere. And again, I believe that in the context in which he is giving us this, he is, he is saying, look, if you're not going to love your enemies, then don't ask others to do the same. If you're not going to be merciful to others as God has been merciful to you, then don't ask your brothers and sisters to do the same. Leading by example was a key component of discipleship in Jesus' ministry. And again, please let us notice that it isn't wrong for correction, but it is wrong that we correct out of a heart of hypocrisy rather than a heart of sincerity. Are any of us perfect like Jesus to correct another? No, we are not. So when I correct a person, I know that even though I may not be struggling with that same sin that they are, I very well could be because I'm a human just like they are, but I'm still not perfect. So the manner in which I approach them is the manner in which God had prescribed, number one, in grace and in love. Number two, for the point of correction and restoration, not just simply for correction. And number three, and this is key crucial, that when I approach them, I approach them not on my own authority, but on the authority of God's word. Because then it is truly the word of God that is bringing to light the wrong within the life of that believer. And I am just articulating what the Bible says. And therefore, I can proceed with that correction even, in, even from an imperfect position. But never from a hypocritical position. Does that make sense? So then he goes on in verse 43 and gives us another illustration. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes. The words good and bad there are somewhat misleading. Because Jesus clarifies that the fruit in which he is speaking of is consistent with the type of tree or the type of vine that it is. Meaning that we know that if I approach an apple tree, I can expect to pick what? If I approach an orange tree, what can I expect? If I, uh, if I approach a cottonwood, what can I expect? A mess, yeah. Cottonwoods are one of the most messy trees out there. And so the consistency of an individual should be manifested not only in what they say, they believe, but the actions and their words, as we're going to see in just a moment, are consistent with who they say they are. One who does not act on what they believe, I have to ask, do they truly believe then what they say they believe? And Jesus is too. And so he says very clearly 
you will know them by their fruits. You will see them by their fruits. Now, if I were to evaluate someone and I see nothing but bad fruit coming from their life and therefore begin to determine and wonder if they are truly a bad tree, I am not doing this based upon my own personal opinion. I'm doing this based on the Word of God. Do you see what I'm saying? And vice versa. And then he goes on in verse 45. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The word there for treasures is treasury. And it is an, it's an apparatus in that culture that was used to store the most precious possessions of an individual. Now understand that what may be precious to one person isn't precious to another. But Jesus said, whatever is truly stored there, whatever is really in the heart of a person will be manifested not only by the fruit of their life, but by the words in which they speak. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus is now telling his disciples, this is how you can know where an individual is at. By the actions and the fruit of their life and by the words of their mouth. Now again, he substantiated this criteria. It wasn't myself who substantiated this. It wasn't myself that devised this litmus test to compare people by. But I am thoroughly uh, convinced and concerned that many in the United States of America today claim Christianity but are far from God. That they don't have the fruit in their life to show and demonstrate that regeneration has actually taken place. They're, the voice, I mean, the, the words in which they use would never convey the graciousness of God, but the self-centeredness of a man's heart. I'm very concerned when I see a significant lack of conviction in the hearts of Christians, professing Christians. I'm very concerned when individuals post on their Facebook and Instagram pictures and sentiments and statements that should never be heard from a Christian's mouth. Let us be frank. There are just certain things that we should not engage in. We shouldn't watch, we shouldn't hear. We need to be careful on what we say concerning those in whom we disagree with in hopes that one day we're, offered, we're given the opportunity like Paul to address those individuals maybe. We need to be careful in how we conduct ourselves in this world. And may I ask you please, that if you do have a dispute with another person, Will you please contact that person personally? Talk to them face-to-face without using social media as a place to hang your dirty laundry? Trust me, you and that person are not the only two looking at that laundry displayed. And Christians sometimes look very foolish in what what we post. That being said, I believe that all of this is indicative of demonstrating where we are truly at 
with the Lord and are his, if we are his disciples. In the context in which we have found verse 37, I believe now we have a much uh, stronger understanding, a biblical understanding of what Jesus meant at this moment, at this time, in this sermon to his disciples. 